Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Stephen Wolfram. Uh, Stephen is the CEO and founder of Wolfram Alpha, Alpha, a knowledge engine, uh, and he's also the author of a newly released book called The Adventures of a Computational Explorer, uh, which I highly recommend you guys get on Amazon. Um, Again, that's The Adventures of a Computational Explorer. Uh, Stephen has been exploring computation for quite a long time, and as we get into on, on the show and, and a, in a very interesting way. Um, and his book is, is basically a roundout of his life as he's been exploring these different computational universes, and I've been reading it for the past couple of weeks. Uh, and one of the most interesting things was that he was a consultant for the movie Arrival, um, and he let them. He gave them a window into what the physics would actually look like in terms of what they were projecting on the TV screen. Uh, and also, he got into language because he's created his own software language, programming language called Mathematica. And he basically helps them develop a new language for these aliens uh, that are communicating with Earth with humans. And he helps them kind of think through some of these issues of what would an alien civilization, how would they, how would they communicate through language? And so highly recommend checking out this book. It's called Adventures of a Computational Explorer. Uh, this interview is really interesting. Um, and unfortunately, the, there's a technical issue on my end. And so my, my part of the sound doesn't sound that great, uh, but the content is so good. And luckily, I wasn't speaking that much during this whole interview. So most of it's pretty good. But when I start speaking, the the sound the sound isn't isn't that great. But this the information and the questions that we're talking about are so interesting and important, particularly as AI starts to take over more and more of the mechanical jobs of humanity. Uh, what we get into this into this show is like, well, what is the role of humans? And the role of human beings is to find out what we want, so that we can tell the computers what we want. Um, and that is a bigger job than. Uh, than most people are prepared to do. Uh, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself the question, what do I want? Uh, some people have the answer. Some people have the answer immediately, but it's pretty rare to find somebody who has the answer of what do I want and be able to explain that and articulate that. Um, and so now as computers essentially take over a lot more of those lower level tasks and we automate a lot more, uh, this is, becomes a more and more of an important question. Uh, what do I want? I'll ask you right now, what do you want? And you know the first answer is probably not the right answer, and you got to ask that question with your whole body and your whole being. What do I want? And so this is what we get into: is how do we figure this out, um, and what are the implications of it? And Stephen is a perfect person to talk to about about this because he's been part of the computational life, a computational understanding, the computational um, exploration. And so he's been doing it for quite a long time. And so he has some interesting answers as to to what it is we're doing as human beings and why it's important to think about these deep philosophical questions um, and ethics and all of these things. So I hope you hope you enjoy this episode. Definitely check out Stephen's book, Adventures of a Computational Explorer. Um, And also, if you're if you do like this episode, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom and hitting the subscribe button. If you like this episode or the other ones, please leave us a five-star review. Uh, and you can always find me on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and any of the other episodes I'm putting out there. So have a great day.
We like to call it a, a knowledge engine because it's not searching, it knows stuff. Um, when you ask it questions, it computes the answers to them. It's kind of a different story from kind of the, the world of the web and search engines and things where you're looking for sort of stuff other people put on the web and trying to find fragments from that. We're kind of, we've spent a few decades sort of trying to actually accumulate knowledge and, and make it computable and make it so that when you ask a question, we compute the answer just like you can compute as we do lots of, you know, answers to math problems and so on. But yes, go ahead. I assume that I assume that you have a philosophy for why you created this. Could you go into more of that? Well, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I, I it turns out I was interested in making stuff like this from like when I was twelve years old, which is a depressingly long time ago. Um, it uh, I kind of have always been interested in sort of uh, organizing knowledge and so on, and uh, uh, my first big interest in life was physics, which I got into when I was an early teenager. And I kind of discovered this neat trick that you can just learn stuff by reading books. And so I learned my way through, you know, college physics and things like that by the time I was pretty young. And by the time I was like 14 or 15, I was sort of doing physics research and writing physics papers and so on. Um, and uh, that led me into, well, one of the big things that led me into was if you do physics, one of the things you need to do is like mathematical calculations, which I was not very keen on. And uh, I always used to say this is incredibly mechanical and bad for humans, but surely one should be able to automate this stuff. And so, well, sort of long story short, uh, by about by the time I was like uh, 20 or so, I got my PhD and I was... Um, uh, trying to figure out what tools did I need to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. And so I ended up building computer systems to do sort of mathematical computation that I wanted to have for doing science. And then that led me to, well, I built a, I started my first company when I was 21 years old that uh, I had my first software product, which was about mathematical computation. And then I started my current company in 1986. Um, building a product called Mathematica, which gets used by, um, well, lots of people to do R&D and education and so on. And uh, so my, my own personal not liking to do like math calculations by hand sort of turned into years later, making a tool that kind of the world uses to have everybody not do math calculations and other things by hand. But the, uh, the story of Wolfram Alpha is a story of kind of trying to go, uh, trying to make as much as possible about the world computable in the sense that if there is some piece of knowledge that somehow is known to our civilization, get it so that you can ask a question about it and automatically get the answer. And that involves sort of collecting lots of data on lots of kinds of things in the world, sort of curating lots of models of how things work in the world and putting all of that together. And the only interface that is reasonable for that kind of real world stuff is natural language interface. And so figuring out how to go from natural language questions to, um, uh, to, to, uh, to be able to compute answers. So anyway, the, the, that whole set of things, I wasn't sure it was going to work. I, I had kind of, for years, I had thought, you know, could I build a system like this? And my, my first conclusion from like 19, late 1970s, 1980 or so was, um, 
to build a system like this, I'd have to build a general purpose AI. And the, the only way to sort of get this kind of uh, computable knowledge engine type thing was to build a brain-like thing. And I had looked at that a bunch of times and kept on thinking this is pretty hard to do. But then I ended up doing a bunch of basic science that uh, one of whose consequences was a thing I call the principle of computational equivalence, one of whose implications is that there isn't sort of a bright line between intelligent and merely computational. And so that made me sort of revisit this question of could I build a computational knowledge engine um, just using computation without having to solve the problem of making kind of a brain like AI. And I thought, look, the science says I can do this. So if I believe the science, which I do, I better actually really try it as a practical piece of engineering. So that, that's something that started oh, in around 2002, 2003. And then uh, in 2009, we released the first version of Wolfram Alpha and it, it uh, gets updated all the time. And, and these days, it's, it's, um, it provides computational knowledge for Siri and for Alexa and for a bunch of other kinds of things. It's sort of become, it's kind of unique in the world, actually, of, of being the only, uh, the only thing where we've actually uh, gotten sort of lots of knowledge about the world across a broad spectrum of areas and made it computable in this way. So that's the, that was a longer answer to, to um, uh, perhaps a, uh, uh, a short question. I mean, for, for me, the thing, uh, lots of things I really like about what we've been able to do with Wolfram Alpha. I mean, it's, it's pretty widely used, particularly, I would say, by uh, particularly by students and some professionals, a bunch of other people, and in, in form factors like Siri and Alexa, it's used a lot by kind of informational tourists, I guess one would call them. Um, and it's, it's, it's always a little bit different story of what gets asked by somebody who's holding up their phone versus what gets asked by somebody, you know, in their, in their kitchen with a, a smart speaker-like thing and, and so on. Um, but I think the... Uh, you know, the thing that I really like is I'm very much into knowledge and computation and things like that. And for me, this is a great sort of democratization of the kinds of things that we've achieved with, with computation and knowledge. And I think it's really neat that uh, sort of everybody everywhere um, has access to the things that we put into Wolfram Alpha, which in many cases are kind of the, the, uh, the sort of the best, latest research level way to compute this or that thing. And so I, I, I find that, um, uh, personally, I just, I, I like that. So it seems like you'd have a lot of knowledge on what the usefulness of computational inquiry would be, but I would like to know what are the limits of copy, computational inquiry? What is computational inquiry not good for in terms of answering those questions that we humans have that are um, almost unanswerable by data? Well, so it's complicated. I mean, the, so the first thing to understand is this phenomenon I call computational irreducibility. So you might think, you know, if you know the rules by which some system operates, if you essentially know the program for some particular kind of system, then you could immediately say, okay, I know the program, I know the rules for the system, so I know what it's going to do. That turns out not to be true. That's kind of the intuition that people have is once you know the rules, you know, if you have this robot and it is governed by certain sort of underlying, uh, an underlying program and so on, you'll just, then it's, then it's all easy, then you'll know what it's going to do. Um, but, but turns out that that is uh, sort of um, scientifically and theoretically not the case. There are many systems, it turns out, which have the property that they are computationally irreducible, 
in the sense that the only way to kind of know what they'll do is to follow through a computation that's just like the computation they have to do to work out what they're going to do. So, you know, we've been kind of, you know, sort of the tradition of exact science has kind of been along the lines of, it's all about predicting stuff. So it's all about saying, okay, we want to know where the earth is going to be a million years from now. So we solve some equations and we plug in the number, you know, a million years and we know where the earth is going to be. We don't have to follow those million orbits explicitly to know where the earth is going to be. We just have a way to sort of reduce the computation and jump ahead and work out the answer. Well, it turns out one of the things I discovered as a piece of basic science is that that computational reducibility is actually the exception rather than the rule if you just start looking at sort of all programs that might exist. So, so the thing that you discover, uh, we, don't, we don't notice it because when we set up systems with traditional kind of engineering, we build systems where we can foresee what they're going to do. And so we, we avoid systems that have computational irreducibility, or we have done. Now, you know, the natural world doesn't avoid those systems. The natural world is full of things where, which I think have this property that you can't work out what they're going to do by any procedure that's much faster than just sort of watching what they do. So, so there's this sort of, so one important kind of limitation on knowledge is this phenomenon of computational irreducibility, where it's like, what's it gonna do? What's gonna happen? Well, actually we can't figure it out. The only way we can work it out is by essentially watching what it does. So if you ask, for example, some infinite question, you know, is this system ever going to do this? Is this, uh, oh, I don't know, let's say you have a, 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 an idealized version of some, I don't know, tumor growth thing, you know, is this tumor gonna grow forever or is it gonna stop? Is this, um, uh, is this particular AI system ever going to have the possibility? Is there, is there any input for which it will produce some horrifying output that will cause, you know, the, the, the world to implode or whatever? Um, these are things that computational irreducibility says you will never be able to, in a finite way, answer. It's kind of related to things like Gödel's theorem in mathematics and so on, that there is no and the phenomenon of undecidability in mathematics, that there is no guarantee that there is a finite way to answer a question for one of these systems. So that's, a, that's one sort of form of limitation on knowledge, is that there are things where even though you know exactly how the thing's set up, even though you know the rules, to work out what it will do is something that can take as long as it takes the system to do it. And if you ask an infinite question, like, is there any set up an initial condition for the system which will do this, or after any amount of time, however long, well, can the system ever do this? Then those are questions that you can't expect to answer in finite time. So that's one, one category of thing. I mean, that has very practical consequences. I mean, I got roped in a couple of months ago to testifying for some Senate subcommittee about uh, kind of um, looking at uh, what I call automated content selection businesses companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter and so on that, that have a bunch of content and are having to decide for every user at every moment which content are they going to rank highly and show to the user. And so the, the question is, you know, can you, to make sure nothing's going wrong, to make sure there's no terrible bias or other thing or that you're, you know, doing things which are societally horrible or whatever, you know, can you just open up the AI and see what's inside and check that it can't do anything wrong? Well, this phenomenon of computational irreducibility kind of tells you uh, that's never going to work. You're never going to be able to guarantee it can't do anything wrong. 
Now, the other part of that issue is, what do you mean by wrong? In other words, you have to define what is your kind of uh, maybe eth ethical or other kind of ground truth. What do you want to have be true in the world? And so one of the questions is sort of the interface between our human version of what we imagine we think we want type thing with uh, kind of the um, uh, what we can explain to an AI or a computer system to do. So I've been quite involved in this idea of, of computational contracts, being able to take things that we might try to express normally in kind of legalese and have some kind of symbolic computational language that can express those kinds of things. Um, and I think it's important to, oh, you know, we can imagine sort of a, a constitution for the AIs that kind of explains what we want to have happen. So one of the things that comes up there is, okay, we want to have sort of an ethical code for everything that's, you know, all the content that's delivered on the internet or for how everything works in the world. Well, you know, it's a place where we can plainly see there's just no way to do that because there isn't an absolute sense of what, you know, the right ethical code is. Um, you know, this is ethical codes are things created by humans for humans. And it's a question of what, you know, what do the humans actually want? And I think you know, one of the things that's happening with kind of these issues about AI is that it puts this focus back on us of what do we actually want? We have to, you know, encode and specify what it is that we want. Um, and uh, so you ask, you know, what's not possible to make computational? Well, the answer is sort of what do we want? That's not something that there isn't a, there isn't a computational precise kind of almost mathematical answer to what do we want? It's something that depends on us humans. And it's evolved over the course of human history. I mean, what, what you might say you want today or what I might say, it's probably different from what either of us would have said 20 years ago or something. It's, it's very different from what people might have said a thousand years ago. Um, it's something that is sort of a complicated output from sort of our uh, sort of physiological, cultural, societal uh, kinds of environment. Um, and I think that's, you know, in a sense that the, the ultimate thing that I don't think we get to automate is what we want to do. So it's the same thing, you know, as we build better and better AIs, better and better automation for things, we can say, okay, this is my goal. Now go achieve that goal in the best possible way. And we can certainly imagine, well, it depends what you mean by best possible. We can certainly imagine uh, ways to automate achieving the goal, but defining what that goal should be well, you know, it's kind of left up to us. I mean, it, it's otherwise it's like asking things like, you know, what's the goal of the universe? Well, you'd say, I don't know. It doesn't doesn't seem to have a goal as such. It's not a, it's not a category of thing that you would reasonably ask. Goals are things that are sort of created by humans for humans. We get to actuate those goals through technology and through automation. But uh, that's the the setting of those goals. I think is something that is fundamentally not. Uh, not something we can expect to automate. I mean, of course, if we say, if we adopt this goal, what's going to happen? Sure, we can simulate that. And you say, okay, I can foresee that if I do this, then lots of terrible things will happen. And that's something I can work out computationally. But then you say, well, are those in fact terrible things? Or are they actually what I want to have happen? You know, it's, it's, so in the end, it's, it's I think, the, the, you know, that's the ultimate unautomatable thing, I think, is, is the what do you want question. There's uh, a lot I can say about all, everything you just said there, but it, it seems to get to the point that we have these natural laws of the universe, as some say might be principles, uh, and then we have social dynamics. And social dynamics are probably a subset of 
those natural laws of, of they lead to things that are um, in, for us humans quite abstract and quite uh, uh, different. So like money itself, money is an abstraction. It doesn't seem like uh, money is, is, is a natural part of the universe. It seems like it's a creation inside of the human imagination that we've now made real. Um, and so what is, what is this relationship between natural laws of the universe and social dynamics to you? Well, I think the issue is there's a lot that, okay, so there's, there's the universe and, there's the, and then there's kind of the computational universe of all possible universes. And, you know, the physical universe has certain particular physical laws. The computational universe of sort of all possible programs can do a lot more than the physical universe can intrinsically do. I mean, you can, you can effectively simulate to, uh, you know, to quite, quite well sort of these things from the computational universe um, in, uh, in the physical universe. But so the, the first, in the sort of computational universe of all possible programs, there's just an awful lot of stuff that can happen. Um, and so then the issue is, okay, for us humans, what is the little subset of that that we actually care about, that our minds wrap themselves around, that we talk about to each other, that we use as bases for how we act and the things that we want and so on. And so I think uh, actually a big part of my sort of effort in my life has been to sort of make a bridge between kind of this computational universe of all possible things that can be computationally done and the things that we humans want to do. And so, you know, I've spent a long time building this computational language called Wolfram Language, which is what underlies Wolfram Alpha and a bunch, bunch of other things. And sort of the goal of this computational language is to capture those parts of kind of what can compu what computation can do that are things that we humans kind of want to talk about, so to speak. So, you know, we have notions of, I don't know, cities, countries, you know, uh, shortest distances between two points, things like this. The things that we care about are a tiny, tiny subset of all the possible things that we could compute. But that's kind of the, you know, when you talk about what are the, what are the constructs that we think about socially, those constructs are things that we, in effect, choose to talk about, that we choose to process with our minds. And they're a tiny subset of all the things that are, in principle, out there to be processed in the computational universe. And sort of an interesting thing, I mean, if you look at human language, for example, there are, you know, in, even in the physical world, there are lots of different kinds of things that go on, but we have names for some of them. Like we have a name for, I don't know, we have a name for a cloud. We have a name for, I mean, we could describe a cloud as, you know, some collection of water vapor that has this and that characteristic and so on. But no, we have a collective name, you know, it's a cloud. Or in the built world, we might have a collective name. Well, actually, a good example is a podcast. You know, a podcast is a fairly recently constructed kind of name for a category of thing that we might previously have said, well, it's a recording of this and you send it out to people and it's whatever. And we would have had to have a whole explanation. But then, then we end up with this kind of, you know, this, this word, this sort of abstracted thing that is a, is, a, is a handle that represents that. And I think what we see a lot in terms of sort of social constructs is they're things where we, in the course of the development of our civilization, end up with an abstraction. We often give it a name. We usually give it a name. And then we start reasoning in terms of it. Like the concept of money, for instance, 
you know, you could imagine deconstructing money into like, you know, the different, uh, well, there isn't really money. There's, you know, there's gold, there's silver, there's this, there's, there's Bitcoin, there's whatever else. Um, but we think of that all in terms of this general abstraction of money. And we sort of build a, a conceptual framework around that general abstraction. And I think that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the way that I, I tend to think about this, you know, the piece that our civilization has carved out from the set of things that are sort of in principle possible in this computational universe of possibilities, those are the things that, for example, we tend to describe with human language and so on. This gets to an interesting point that I read about in the book called Range by David Epstein, which he talks about our IQ from generation to generation stays the same. Uh, but the thing that is changing from generation to generation that is improving is our ability to uh, um, to deal with and to work with abstract com concepts, just like you were saying, different linguistic concepts. And it's something interesting for me because I've been doing something called spaced repetition memorization. I use software in order to, um, uh, to test me every day on, on new things. And the only thing, the, the most useful thing I've found it for is learning new languages. Uh, and that's, I use those natural, natural languages, but I'm also using it for jargon in terms of biology. Uh, and that helps me to understand these better concepts. And it's really uh, interesting. And so this brings up an interesting question of, we have this human brain. What types of computation are good for the human brain to do? What types of questions are good for the, what kind of inquiries are good for the human brain to do? And then what, what things should we not be doing inside of our head? Should we be using these computers for? Right. Well, I mean, to, to comment on this thing about IQ and abstraction, I'm not a big believer in IQ. I'm not sure quite what it means. But, but, uh, but the whole question of we gradually know more as our civilization progresses. How come education continues to work, so to speak? Why isn't it the case that we just sort of, we have so much more to educate people about because we know so much more? And I think the answer is this phenomenon of abstraction. That is, there was a time when you had to, let's say in biology, you had to learn individually about all the different kinds of plants and animals and this, that and the other. And then in the end, it turns out there's this sort of level of abstraction that you can say, well, they, let's say all the plants do photosynthesis, let's say, and you just have to have this one abstract concept that then allows you to reason about and know about a very broad class of things. So you don't need to know the details anymore. And I think that, um, so you asked the question, what, you know, what should we be doing in our brains versus what should we be delegating to uh, computational systems? And, I, you know, I know one of the places that I happen to have been involved quite a bit in is, is math and math education and so on. And, you know, from when I was a very little kid, I was like, I shouldn't be doing this myself. You know, I, I invented for myself a little addition slide rule. You took put two rulers next to each other and you move them. Probably people don't know what a slide rule is. Never mind. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a calculational, physical calculational tool that was used from the 1600s until 1972. And in 1972, electronic calculators came on the scene and it vanished almost immediately. But it was a thing where you, you slide two things and uses logarithms to be able to do multiplication. Well, you know, I, I happened to make one of those when I was about five or six or something for doing addition. Um, but so I've been a, a big believer in delegate what you can to computational systems. And as I say, I think the number one thing you can't delegate is the what do you want to do? And it's, it's the role of sort of technology folk like myself to try to automate 
you know, as much as possible to try to build sort of the most sophisticated computational intelligence we can in the service of humans. Um, and I think that the, um, uh, there's, there's this whole question of, okay, so there's all this sophisticated stuff that can be done computationally. How do we humans tell the computer what to do? And that's where this kind of computational language idea comes in. And that's where sort of the notion of, of sort of how we express ourselves, how we, how we uh, there's this, okay, so historically, like 400, 500 years ago, there wasn't, uh, math was not a, 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 it was much less widely done. And one of the things that was sort of an important innovation was the idea of mathematical notation, things like plus signs and times signs and things like that. And once you had those, it was much easier to uh, to talk about things in in um, uh, you know in in math and to sort of reason about things mathematically, and so that you know that that phenomenon led to the development of algebra, calculus, lots of mathematical science, etc., etc., etc. But you know, in a sense, the this this mathematical notation provided a way for us to focus our thinking, and sort of it provided a framework for thinking about things mathematically. I think one of the things I've been trying to achieve for several decades now with this computational language I've been building is to provide people a way to sort of think about things computationally, a sort of precise way to think about things computationally. And I think that's sort of an important part of, 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 of what we get to do now, sort of one of the, one of the transitional things of the 21st century is um, not so much uh, let's get our computers to, uh, one of the things we can do not only is to get the computers to do what humans want to have the computers do, but also to use the very nature of computers as a way to help sort of refine our ways of thinking about things, just as mathematics provi provided a way to kind of refine our way of thinking about things. Logic did the same thing. Computational thinking is kind of a way of thinking about things, a sort of structured way of thinking about things that I think is very valuable even for us humans. And I, and I guess that the um, uh, sort of you know, once you've once you've gone from the what do I want to do? Okay, how do I formulate that in a way that has some precision? Like, like you know, it's not clear to what extent. You know, there's sort of questions and complicated issue whether whether we can you know how to what extent we can form thoughts without having some linguistic representation of those thoughts. Well, one thing that's clear is that that um, uh, the the types of things we can readily think about in terms of a sort of computational thinking framework, there's a lot of stuff we can now start building up. And we're talking about abstraction. This is kind of one of the, you know, this is the big new abstraction of the 21st century. It's kind of the computational thinking idea. Um, and I think that that's what will allow us as humans to, to build up a lot of things. And, and, you know, if we look at human society, for example, there are lots of structures that are made possible in human society, lots of things that humans might want to do that are made possible by sort of abstract constructs that we, that we create. I mean, you mentioned money. Money is a great example of that. You know, without money, there are lots of kinds of things about the way society is organized that just wouldn't be that way. Um, and I think this is, uh, you know, what we will see, and I, I don't know how it will all play out, is as sort of computational thinking and the computational paradigm becomes more uh, tied into everything we think about, there'll be a bunch of new sort of civilizational features that arise. And I think one of the things to, to realize is that 
human language, natural language, the invention of that was sort of what probably launched civilization. I mean, it's what allows one to communicate abstract thoughts in ways that don't seem possible without language. And, um, you know, just like when you have written language, that's what sort of uh, allowed certain kinds of human organization, whether it's cities or governments or whatever else. I think you, you kind of, um, uh, you know, as that got more organized, uh, well, ultimately bureaucracy and all these kinds of things were, were made possible by the existence of written language. I think we are, we're going to see a transition there as sort of computational, the framework of computational thinking gets more woven into the way that, that we do things. So I think it's kind of a, a, a two-way issue of we get to use the idea of computation more in the way that our brains work, and we get to outsource, so to speak, um, all the stuff that, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's sort of easy to get computation to be done by computation, by computer systems. What's hard is to explain to those computer systems what we want them to do. And so that involves this kind of bridge between what's going on in our brains and what we can explain to a computational system to do. So I think that's, uh, you know, that, that would be my, um, my response to the question of, of sort of what, uh, you know, how do we evolve what happens in our brains versus what happens in our, in our external sort of digital technology systems and so on. Uh, so that brings up two questions. I got two important questions I want to ask. The first of which is, where does knowledge come from? You talked about these these uh, symbols arising uh, and 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 people finding out about these symbols, and that allowed us to unlock certain features in our in our brains. And then you talk about language itself. Where did language come from? Why all of a sudden did language all of a sudden appear as a tool that we humans could could use? Um, and then the other one is, how do does an individual get better at, an individual and a group get better at uh, figuring out what they want? <laughs> Fair, enough. Um, Fair uh, enough. Yeah. Well, so, so I mean about language, you know, I, how inevitable is language is an interesting question. I think that the Here's what I see language as being. So we have a computation going on in one system. We have another system that wants to somehow get the essence of that computation transmitted to it. You know, in our brains, we have, you know, uh, some number of trillions of neurons or whatever, and they're all firing and doing all kinds of things. But the actual words coming out of my mouth, so to speak, are a tiny abstraction of all the random neuron firings in my brain. Um, but they are, the, they are the symbolic representation that might be useful to transmit to your brain. And um, you know, maybe those, uh, you know, hearing those words causes a bunch of more neuron firings to happen in your brain. But you know, so language is this kind of communication channel that abstracts from a lot of detailed computation something which is useful to talk about. So it's the same type of thing as, you know, you've got a picture. It's, it's got, a, you know, 10 million pixels in it. Okay, you can give, okay, these are the values of all the pixels, but actually that's not very interesting. What you want to do is say that's a picture of a cat. That's a sort of symbolic representation of the picture. And so what language is about is about taking, making a symbolic representation of what you care about, about a system, and 
Of course, what you care about, well, depends on what you care about, so to speak. It's, it's in other words, saying from those pixels, I want to say it's a picture of a cat. But actually, what you might care about is, oh, well, it's, it's a picture that was taken with a lens of focal length such and such, and it has this, you know, it has the, you know, D6500 illuminant that was used as the, um, as whatever, and, oh, it's a picture of a cat? I didn't care it's a picture of a cat. I care about these other nerdy things about the photograph, right? And so this question of, of what is it that you want to transmit, what is the symbolic representation that you, uh, that contains the elements that you care about, that's sort of what language is about. And it relates very much, I think, to, uh, to this phenomenon of, of I mean, it, it is kind of the, the, the essential abstraction is the thing that leads you to decide that you want to represent this thing linguistically as opposed to just give all its pixels effectively. And, you know, I've spent a large part of my life as a language designer, designer of computational language. Um, it's a very interesting activity, at least I think it's an interesting activity, which is why I've spent a lot of my life on it, um, because it is essentially trying to take, uh, it's trying to figure out what is the right way to do that abstraction. From all the possible things that happen in the world, what are the ones that we want to actually describe and give names to and so on? Now, you know, is language, uh, you know, what is the evolutionary inevitability of language? I don't know exactly. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this description of it's kind of the way of having symbolic communication of information, um, I think there are different versions of how that gets done in the history of biological evolution from genomics to various kinds of uh, uh, re-imprinting of a, you know, I don't know, visual object recognition or something in every generation, these kinds of things. Language was one that evolved. And I don't, uh, you know, to me it seems sort of inevitable and sort of fundamental. Whether, uh, whether it has to be, I'm not. Uh, and for example, the, the one-dimensional nature of language, it's not clear that that's anything essential. I mean, the, the fact that language is sort of played out in time it's not something that is sort of a, a diagrammatic, two-dimensional thing. Um, but, uh, you know, and there, there are details like that. But let's see, you, you were also asking about sort of how do people figure out what it is that they want. I mean, in, um, uh, as, uh, well, as I say, I think societally, it's pretty interesting right now, as we're just beginning, you know, the, the, I think we're beginning to see the sort of first skirmishes in the AI wars of people realizing, gosh, we just delegated a lot of stuff about how the world works to AIs, and you know maybe we don't like it, and maybe, and we have all kinds of issues, like was it only one AI? Does the whole world get to live under the same AI? You know, isn't that rather totalitarian? You know, don't we want to break it up into sort of different AIs for different groups of people? Well, how many groups should we have? You know, is it like, should we have 200, like the number of countries? Should we have you know, 10,000? Should we have 10 million? We don't really know. Um, and I think that's a, that's a thing that is sort of getting focused by these things of, you know, for a long time, there are a lot of questions about ethics, for example, or about political philosophy, where these were just things philosophers could debate. And now, you basically have to write code or the analog of that that implements these things. You have to decide, you know, you talk about, you know, I don't know, a trolley problem for you know, typical ethics problem, you know, do you choose to, um, uh, uh, you know, run the, 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 the train car into this 
you know, into this group of pandas versus this single endangered, you know, cheater or something. I, I don't know. You know, you have, to, you have to have a whole discussion about that. Well, you know, you can have, that's a great philosophical discussion, but in the end, the self-driving car has a piece of code that's going to decide what to do. Um, and it's sort of interesting that, you know, a lot of what's happened in philosophy over the last few thousand years, uh, I always find it interesting that, you know, for a long time, it's all philosophy. And then one day it has to turn into something real, so to speak. And that moment, for a lot of these things in ethics, that moment is kind of now. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the things to realize is if one believes there's a theory of ethics, a sort of overarching mathematical theory, I think that's just not, not right. And that it's ultimately a question of sort of what people want and breaking things down in these, you know, this group of people wants this, this group of people wants this. Okay, how do you deal with sort of political philosophy? What's the interface between those groups? And, you know, how do you, those are all complicated things which we, which we have to see. And, you know, we can see some of this in the governance mechanisms of, I don't know, blockchains and things like that. We can start to see some of these issues that were, uh, for a while, it's just like, oh, well, we have a democracy. Okay, well, how does consensus work for this, um, you know, for this blockchain system? What happens if, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's, um, that, that's one thing. On the, on the sort of more societal scale, that's, that's a thing to say. On the more individual human scale, I mean, I, I think um, uh, it seems like a paradox in my life, but I think ultimately it isn't a paradox. But I don't yet understand why it isn't, that I'm both interested in these, in a sense, very deconstructive ideas about um, uh, kind of the overall nature of things and the ways in which sort of humans are very unspecial. And yet on the other hand, I'm, I'm somebody who's interested in people and have followed for a very, very long time. Lots of people, mentored lots of people, and, you know, uh, you know, collected lots of talent at my company and all that kind of thing. And I'm very, uh, very interested in kind of the trajectories of individual people. And so this question of, okay, what should people do? I've, I've, I've been very interested in that. I've dealt a whole bunch, I have kids of my own, but I've also dealt a whole bunch with kids and so on. And um, uh, that's, a, that's a really key question of what should one, you know, what, what should one be doing? And I think the thing that I always find is that there's a, there's a sort of certain set of intrinsic interests and skills and so on that people have. And then there's a set of things that exist in the world. And it's kind of this complicated puzzle, you know, can you match up the set of things that are your intrinsic characteristics with things that are actually doable in the world? I mean, I think, you know, I feel very fortunate that I've kind of lived at a time in history when a particular thing that I happen to like a lot, namely the kind of the, the, the computational paradigm is, is sort of in its golden age, so to speak. It's the time when that went from nothing to something which is becoming increasingly a sort of central feature of, 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 uh, of civilization and so on. And, you know, it's, it's great that I've lived at that time in history and that's something that, you know, resonates well with, with, with my way of thinking about things, you know, at a, at another time, if, if I was really, really keen on, well, like, like when I was a kid, I was, I was quite keen on space and things like that, okay? But I've kind of lived at the wrong time in history for that, because for 50 years, not that much, you know, space hasn't been going gangbusters, you know, maybe, maybe it's going to pick up again now. Or, you know, if I, if I was really, the thing I was really into was kind of, uh, I don't know, exploration of, of, uh, of the world, you know, find the source of the Nile type thing. Well, sorry, that was done. You know, the, the, the source of every river has been found type thing. It's not um, that wrong time in history to, to be able to do that. But I think then the question is, you know, given a person 
and given what that person, you know, how that person is sort of oriented, what, you know, how do they match with what exists in the world? And, and of course, what's existing in the world does change over time. And, you know, even in my own uh, time, I've, you know, I've even been involved in inventing a few sort of categories of work that just didn't even have a name before. And it's like, oh, you can do that. You know, you can be a linguistic curator or something. Um, that wasn't a, a kind of a thing that people did before. And so, you know, I think a, an important sort of, uh, uh, there's, there's kind of what is emerging in the world that is possible to do. And it's always cool when people get involved in something sort of early, you know, th things tend to go through these kind of, uh, this moment when there's some big methodological advance and then there's kind of a golden age when lots of stuff can get done. And then maybe it slows down and becomes quite institutionalized and then, you know, parades through the centuries in a fairly structured way that doesn't, doesn't allow, you know, huge amounts of initiative to be taken. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's often neat, for, it depends on people's personality, but for many people, if they get, in, you know, engaged in something at the point when it's just in its kind of golden age of growth, um, that ends up being a, um, uh, you know, they kind of get, the tide rises and they rise with it, so to speak. But I think this whole question about, you know, what is it that people, uh, what is it that people sort of intrinsically resonate with? I mean, I think the, the education system does a pretty poor job at being able to expose that for people because it's like we're still learning the same stuff we were learning 100 years ago when, when public education first started off. And it's like, okay, you know, this kid likes math. Okay, well, math is a category of thing that's taught in education, but what do they actually like about math? Is it that they like, you know being competitive and being able to solve the problems when the other kids can't? Do they like kind of abstract aesthetics? Do they like kind of um, the, uh, um, the pure sort of um, problem solving aspect of it? You know, there's some essence of that is what they like. And, and, you know, it's always an interesting puzzle if you can see those things about somebody to figure out, okay, so how does that fit into what's actually possible in the world? And I think that's the, um, uh, you know, people, and people are, are actually, uh, you know, it's very difficult when one's sort of inside the, the story, so to speak, to say, what is the right way to do this? I mean, I think in, in my own life, I've been, uh, well, I've been, I, I don't know, I've, I've, I've done a bunch of stuff and it, it's, it's ended up, um, um, uh, somehow I've, I've kind of tried to figure out what to do for myself, so to speak, and I don't think I've followed, uh, you know, I've not been a big following you know, well-defined tracks. Now that happens to be my personality. You know, I have to sort of figure out everything for myself. That's a great trait for many kinds of purposes. Sometimes it's really a dumb thing to do. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, is, it, has, it has great advantages. I think it, it's, you know, on balance, I think figuring out what one wants for oneself is, is kind of, is a, is, is a good thing, but it's not for everybody. And there are plenty of people where that would be very disorienting and where they really want, you know, I want to be a doctor, I want to go to medical school, I want to be in this structure, you know, I want to operate in this way, I'm going to use my intelligence to do terrific things, but it wants to be in the structure, as opposed to somebody like me who probably does best in a case where it's like nothing like this has ever been done before, invent something from nothing, so to speak. Um, and I think, but I think people you know, people work very differently in that regard. I mean, like, like for me, I, I, I end up working on very long, large projects. So, you know, I've, they're projects I've worked on now for 30, 30 years or more. And, um, uh, you know, I think, I have to say, I'm always an optimist. So when I go into these projects, it's like, this project is going to take a year. 
well, actually it took 10 years, but, you know, it's, um, uh, and, and, and I think that it is a, you know, for me, the sort of tenacity of any project I start, I'm going to finish. That just happens to be my personality, for better or worse. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, um, um, uh, I suppose I, I don't happen to be one of these people who's like, um, I'm, I'm neither the, wow, that's incredibly exciting, or like, oh, how, how depressing type thing. I tend to be rather even tempered about these things. And I think that's probably, it's probably a good trait when it comes to doing these very long projects, because you don't get, um, uh, I mean, it's kind of a shame at the end of it. It's like, oh my God, we've just built this huge project. You know, we just have, like, we have a product release that's been a long thing that's coming out um, probably tomorrow. And it's like, okay, it's coming out tomorrow. I got a bunch of stuff to do. Um, but I don't kind of get sort of super elated about it, just as I don't get sort of super down if it's like, oh my gosh, there's another year of work to do here type thing. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I think this problem of, you know, so what is it that people should be doing? Um, and, you know, how do they find those things in life that they really, that really resonate with them? You know, it's, it's a problem that people, uh, I mean, it, it's it, too many people end up, I think sometimes it's a, they're victims of their own early success. That is something, you know, they do well in something and it's like, okay, just keep doing that. And then, you know, then they wake up at age 45 and they realize, you know, I'm stuck. This is all I can, you know, this is all I can do type thing. Um, and I think that's, that's a shame. And that gets into a question I wanted to ask you, which is essentially we see this computational age of computation is now changing the nature of the game. Our societal structures seem to be kind of dissolving as we speak, uh, and that that people are the structure that most people find reassuring seems to be changing rapidly, um, and uh, in a way that almost forces people into that category that you say that you are, and that I think that I am as well, is that that you that you have to be able to not be in a structured environment in order to succeed. Do you think that that's accurate? I don't, actually. I think that the world will always end up, you know, what happens is, you know, in, in almost every area of human endeavor, there are periods of sort of uh, uh, foment and, and turbulence. And then, I mean, I don't know, look at a field like law, okay? So there's going to be a disruption there. There's going to be computational law. But fundamentally, lawyers have been doing sort of the same thing for hundred, many, many, many hundreds of years. And it's a structured thing and, you know, you do what you do. And, you know, yes, there, uh, I mean, that particular one, there'll be some disruption in it. But, but I think people, it is a natural feature of society that there end up being these tracks. And what, what tends to happen, it's actually a bit like the abstraction issue. Once there is a thing that lots of people do, it gets institutionalized. In other words, when there were only a few podcasters, you know, that was a funky thing. And there were very undefined rules and you had to kind of make it all up for yourself. But once there are lots of podcasters, there's kind of a, I don't know, the whole ecosystem, but, you know, there's aggregators of podcasts, there's this, there's that, there's the other. You know, there's, there's um, you know, places you can get podcasts. There's all these kinds of things. There's a, there's a structure around it. So I think what, what ends up happening, the only thing that could happen, which I don't think will happen, is that the number of categories of things that people do gets so large that no, no individual one is big enough that there's an institutional structure around it. But I don't, think, I don't see that happening. I think that people will, 
I think it's a natural sort of herd tendency of our species to say, I mean, it's sometimes very frustrating to me, actually, but, but um, you know, it's because, like, I'm doing this thing, and people are like, well, isn't that just like, like you asked me at the beginning, you said, you know, don't you have a sort of knowledge search engine? Well, no, it's not a search engine, it's something different. But there's this category of, of search engine, and there's a bunch of them, so to speak. And so that becomes a thing that, that, you know, society tends to try and sort of herdify things to the point where it's like, well, that's like this, so it's all in the same bucket. So I, I kind of don't think, you know, I think what will happen is that, yes, the, the set of things that it makes sense for people to do will change somewhat. I mean, you know, it, it's not many generations ago when, you know, physical strength was one of the key attributes in Western society, for example, which at this point, you know, uh, a few places where that's important, but most of the time for most people, that's not really a key attribute. Um, you know, there was a time when being able to handle certain kinds of abstractions was, uh, was kind of irrelevant. It's like, you know, who cares? Most, most professions didn't really involve that. Um, and, uh, you know, and there are different, different kinds of things that have been different features of the human condition get more emphasized and less emphasized, I think, over the course of time. I mean, the, the ability to, oh, I don't know, what level of risk do you want to take? I suspect that's, that's changed a bit over time in different, um, you know, what, what does it mean to take risk? I mean, there were, there were times in, in history where sort of everybody was sort of living at the edge of extinction type thing, um, which is, doesn't tend to be the current, you know, people, uh, you know, in, in Western society, you know, uh, sort of, you know, you kind of don't think you're going to die tomorrow, so to speak. Whereas, you know, even a few hundred years ago, that was a, that was a serious possibility that you had to, you know, um, and uh, I think that the, um, so, you know, I, 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 I tend to not think that this, uh, I mean, I think that one of the questions is, is there a place for people who take initiative? I mean, there have been times in history where there really isn't, where it's very hard, where there's a, where things are very structured and where, um, you know, where there's not a lot of, uh, you know, where, where change is just, um, uh, is always burnt at the stake type thing. You know, people just don't want that. We live in a time when, for a variety of reasons, mostly, mostly to do with technology, I think, um, there is a certain degree of expectation that there will be, you know, I mean, technology has been the one thing, you know, throughout history. If you look at, you know, what's a driver of change? Well, there's the advance of technology. I mean, there are other things... You know, the human condition, I tend to think, is pretty much the same now. You know, you go watch some, some you know, uh, Greek play or something, and you, you see, you know, all the things that are going on there, and it's like, that's just exactly the same as today. You know, there's nothing different over these couple of thousand years in the story of the human condition. But those people aren't talking about, you know, uh, getting, you know, likes on Facebook or something. They're talking about something different. Um, but it's still the same human condition. So we got a few. I've got a bunch of questions that came up from that. I'll give them to you, and then you can answer whichever one you want. Uh, uh, what is the temporality of ethics? Uh, so you mentioned ethics being this kind of like people have been debating this for thousands of years, and now is the time where it's actually coming into it. Uh, and then another question: Where is the age of computation leading us to? Why did we stop innovating in terms of atoms and spaceships, and go in, and why did we go into the innovation of bits and seemingly stay there? Um, and then. What is the key attribute for a strong or powerful human in the age of computation? Okay, well, I could try all of these. They're all interesting. 
Okay, so you ask about sort of the temporar temporality of ethics. In other words, is the ethics represented in the Bible or something? You know, should it be? Is it? Is it? Should it be fundamentally different from the ethics that exists today, so to speak? And I think that really is asking the question. You know, has the human condition changed? And I think that's an interesting question. You know, to what extent technology has changed or not the human condition? I mean, we mentioned. You know. Like for example, I've been interested in this problem of kind of making a sort of symbolic representation of human discourse, symbolic discourse language, I call it. The last time people seriously tried to do that was the 1600s, and they made up these things called philosophical languages, which were kind of uh, sort of human language independent representations of the world and so on. Okay, so you read through their philosophical languages, and it's quite interesting what's the same and what's different. So there's a lot of things about sort of human uh, emotions and things like that. It's all exactly the same. Then, then you find so one thing that is uh, uh, kind of um, uh, kind of interesting is it, there's just so much stuff about death. I mean, it's just sort of all these different ways to die, all these different things. I mean, and, and you know, it it felt like that was something that was much more of an everyday thing as opposed to, you know, what happens, you know, it, so that, that's one thing that's a little different. The other thing is, of course, the technology isn't there. Now, you know, what will happen to the human condition and to ethics as we go forward? I think, my, my guess is the biggest discontinuity in human history will be when we essentially achieve effective immortality, which will certainly happen. And um, uh, it's, um, and, and then, you know, a lot of questions about human condition and it's sort of the ethics around the human condition change. You know, for example, there's a certain, you know, uh, there's a certain sense of urgency. If you're like, I want to get this done in my life type thing. Well, if your life is infinite, how does that play out? If, if you're, you know, and what, um, you know, how does that, so I think that will, I think that will change some aspects of ethics. I think also the notion of Oh, I don't know, all kinds of things about personhood and the notion of, of um, um, uh, what it takes to, you know, by the time we can back up our consciousness, so to speak, and, or clone it or whatever, what does that mean? You know, when there's a bot of me, um, you know, how do you treat the bot of me? What rights does the bot of me have? You know, when do, when do we get to the point? You know, people are still scoffing at the idea that AIs will have rights, but it gets a little bit more complicated when there's a, you know, when there's a bot of me and it's the only thing of me that's left, you know, what do you do with that bot? Can you switch it off, you know, or is that, you know, how does that all work? So I think there are issues like that. I think that the, um, uh, and I think, yeah, so, so I do think that coming, coming in the future, there'll be sort of changes in the type of framework that we have to think about in terms of ethics. I think, I think in current times, honestly, even with all the technology we have, I, maybe I, Maybe I'm not thinking well enough to, to see this, but I don't think it's changed. You know, the fact that we have you know, instant communication and we have sort of uh, storage of, of everything that's happened and you know, all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, definitely differences, but I, I, I don't feel like that's changed the core ethics that I think the human, that hasn't so fundamentally changed the human condition that we see a lot of kind of ethical change. Now, you know, I think that this whole question about... Um, Oh, I mean, look, there are obvious trends in at least Western civilization history in terms of what people, you know, they're mostly things about, they're mostly being gentler with people, so to speak, seems to be a typical trend. 
It's not true in all, in, in, you know, it's not even true in all cultures, even in today's world. You know, it seems like that's the, that's the course of history. And why does that happen? I think part of the reason that happens, among other things, is the fact that, you know, lives are longer and people aren't just dropping dead all the time in sort of in the middle of their active life. And I think that probably has an effect on, on um, you know, so I think there are things like that that feed into sort of the, the, uh, the ethical systems that people tend to, to favor, so to speak. I, I, think, I think the one thing that would change the core basic human condition would be immortality. I think that's the, that's the I think, I feel like that is the, just such a core feature of human nature, just as you've been describing. I think that that's the one thing that would need to change in order for us to really have a change in the nature of the human condition. No, no, I agree. I think also that the, the cloning of personhood will be a mess. I mean, that's a, um, and I think that that, uh, uh, and, the, and the discreteness of personhood, which is, you know, very much a part of, of who we think we are, so to speak. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that the, um, I mean, the uh, one thing that I, I mean, it could be the case in the be careful what you wish for department, so to speak, you know, we think immortality seems like a good thing. I, I think it seems like a good thing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of the, um, uh, the view of the future of humanity. I mean, I think I've, I've made this kind of comment a few times. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the box of a trillion souls playing video games for the rest of eternity type thing. Um, and, uh, I mean, the one thing about that that I... So, you know... When we talk about that today, it's like, oh my gosh, that's the most terrible outcome for, you know, for everything we've done in our civilization, you know. We're a box of a trillion souls playing video games for eternity, so to speak, right? Um, I mean, curiously, not that different from various sort of religious theological views of kind of, um, uh, kind of the, the uh, of, of, of sort of the nature of souls and so on. But, but putting that aside, you know, it feels like gosh, that's a terrible outcome for civilization. I used to think that. I, I have sort of come to believe, I might be wrong, that, that, that what you have to think about is, is what does it feel like inside the system, so to speak. So, you know, to us today, we feel like the things we're doing have all kinds of purpose. You know, any given person, typically, it's like I'm doing this because, etc., etc., etc. Well, some of those becauses are inexplicable to somebody a thousand years ago. They just would make, you know, a thousand years ago, somebody might say, I'm doing this for the greater glory of God. To, to many people in Western, you know, civilization today, it's like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. Um, not universally, but that's a, you know, that would be a common kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, that might be a, a common response among a certain sort of slice of the world. Um, and similarly, it's like, you know, to somebody a thousand years ago saying, I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm taking exercise by walking on a treadmill. It's like, why are you doing that? That just seems completely crazy. Um, and, uh, but, you know, there is a, there's a chain of, of uh, cultural reasoning behind why that happens or why one's doing that that makes perfect sense to us today. Um, and so, uh, you know, by the time you're a soul in a box playing video games for eternity, so to speak, there may very well be a story that you are telling yourself, so to speak, that makes as much sense um, and as feels as purposeful as anything that's happening today. 
And I mean, you know, I think this relates again to this question of is there an ultimate sense of purpose? And you know, for example, does the universe have a purpose? I don't think most people would, you know, most people wouldn't attribute a purpose to the universe. I mean, there's sort of religious uh, structures where you, where you do attribute that, but, but um, most people generally wouldn't. Um, you know, does physics have a purpose? Probably wouldn't say it did. So, you know, in a sense, it's all, at some level, it's all barren. There isn't, you know, we can't say there is an ultimate purpose to everything. Um, and so any purpose is a constructed thing for us in our civilization, in our society, and so on. And so given that, it's kind of, you know, far, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't look down on the, you know, the souls playing video games for the rest of eternity, so to speak. Because to them, there is as much of a sense of purpose as, as we have today. And neither of us really should have any kind of uh, snootiness about the fact that our purpose is better than your purpose, so to speak. Um, uh, this, that's, that's, um... I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Stephen. And I highly recommend you check out his book, The Adventures of a Computational Explorer. Um, and you can go find that on Amazon by searching for Adventures of a Computational Explorer. Yeah, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was definitely a very interesting one for me to do. I've always looked up to Stephen, and I think he's um, got a lot of interesting things to say about what it means to live in a world where technology is now ever-present and ubiquitous and in charge of a lot of things that we take for granted. And I'd love to hear more of your thoughts. You can find me at Stuart Alsop III on Twitter uh, if you want to send me a message there. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode and any of the other episodes you're listening to. Have a great day.